The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Learn to quiet the noise of the ego and connect to the truth of your soul. Join former monk and host of the Practicing Human podcast, Corey Mascara, for Living in Alignment, a weekend workshop live stream, live from Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, June 28th through 30th. Rebuild your life from a place of embodied listening and quiet knowing. To learn more and register for this live stream, go to eomega.org slash thrive. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Welcome to Spirit Matters where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and uh, thank you for tuning in to Spirit Matters. And a another in our series of uh, interviews with wise people who can uh, help you along your own spiritual path with their own uh, wisdom and experience. Um, If you're new to the podcast, uh, I would urge you to uh, look at the archive of uh, previous recordings. We're up to about 30 now. And uh, you should avail yourself of of uh, that collection. And also, uh, if you're um, unaware that the uh, podcast had a predecessor by the same name um, that I co-hosted for about six years, uh, that iteration exists in an archive, and you're all welcome to go listen to about 300 of those interviews at spiritmatterstalk.com. And uh, today, uh, we have another wise person with us. Uh, Yoshin David Radin is the abbot and founder of the Ithaca Zen Center in uh, Ithaca, New York, upstate. He began his Zen practice in 1976, was ordained a monk in 1983 and an Osho in 1989. Uh, In addition to his uh, center in Ithaca, he also taught regularly at the Rinzai-ji Zen Center in Los Angeles. And his writings have been turned into songs or spoken poems, released in four collections, including... Love Songs of a Zen Monk. He was the editor of two books by his teacher, Joshu Sasaki, and has been uh, published in Tricycle Magazine. His latest book, which is how I became aware of him, is A Temporary Affair, Talks on Awakening and Zen. It's a collection of talks he gave at the Ithaca Zen Center at a time when his health was, uh, excuse me, severely compromised. And we'll talk about that and many other things. Yoshin, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Um, We always begin by asking our guests uh, to tell our listeners about their sort of spiritual origin story. Tell us how you came to Zen and the uh, career that you've had as a as a Zen teacher. Uh, all right, I I was uh, on a normal American lifestyle path 
graduated from college, took a year off to travel around the world with some funds I had earned as a student before continuing into graduate school. And in the course of those travels, I bumped into an experience that changed my life, which was <clears throat> sitting around with uh, some, I think this was in, this was in Thailand, uh, sitting around with some hippie Americans and usual hippie American activities. <laughs> when, 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 uh, uh, of a extreme fear came over me that my mind was disintegrating and that everything that I had been up to that moment was about to be eradicated. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that moment, one of the people there said, why don't you just lie down, die, and get it over with? <laughs> and so I just fell over backwards and all of a sudden, I was staring at my corpse lying on the ground. Mm. I had never had any introduction to any spirituality in it, anything other than you know, we are all individuals pursuing our success story. And that was, <clears throat> it just annihilated uh, all my life plans. Because I thought if ultimately this body is not my deeper identity, there is a deeper identity that is a true identity. Um, and that I should never, absolutely never, ever forget what just I just was experiencing. Mm. Because it was the truth. And that changed my life it wasn't that I became anything it was just um, the deep insight revealed itself of course it disappeared over time um, but I went from about to enter Ivy League law school mm -hmm. to living on a hippie commune with no electricity, no telephone, and not, <laughs> no running water for 12 years. <laughs> that was the potency of the moment. And as the experience started to, to uh, wane, and as the drug ceased to produce the experience that had happened, I started looking for a way to to have an in, the insight that I had had, but couldn't realize anymore. I wasn't searching in a particular lineage, but I <clears throat> crossed paths with uh, Sasaki Roshi, Joshi Sasaki Roshi, who was giving this very, very intensive retreat. And it was the first time with his teaching and the intensity of the retreat and just whatever other karmic forces were there, um, the insight returned. And uh, once the insight returned, or at least a glimpse, I should say, then my thought was I should never leave this man until he dies because he has the capacity and he knows what happened and he knows the path and can <clears throat> facilitate the insight. So I stayed practicing with him until he passed away in 2014. He, 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 uh, he was 107 and he was still teaching pretty vigorously in his upper 90s and even still traveling until 100. At that point, he kind of retired, kept teaching, but it wasn't the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I continued practicing mm -hmm. in that tradition, but I never felt any affinity for the form in mm -hmm. a certain 
me, it was the insight. It's always the insight, not the form. That is what people are looking for. And it seemed to me that that, that form wasn't a natural expression of, of mine. Hmm. You know, I felt after a certain point that I could trust myself to manifest what I knew. Well, not what I knew is, you know, words are difficult here. Or to manifest the teachings of emptiness or whatever in a way that was more simpatico with the people I was dealing with rather than trying to create a very formal style Zen situation. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I really, uh, I, from what I saw, um, just telling people to nail themselves on a cushion for umpteen hours a day <laughs> doesn't necessarily produce a sense of humor or a warmth or a playfulness about the whole thing. But wisdom itself does. So I became more interested in. in that's why I, I don't feel so comfortable. Oh, Zen priest. I don't really go around in, in the formal robes or keep the formal tradition. But I do lead practice at a meditation hall. And it has the flavor of Zen. Mm. But I try to play down that identity. Interesting. This is um, another example of um, how the teachings from the East have to adapt to a different culture, a different time frame and uh, circumstances. And you, you, uh, did you ever feel you were taking liberties? That were you ever met with any approbation for uh, departing from the formal structures? Uh, I didn't socialize a lot, <laughs> so I I didn't I didn't try to butt into anybody. You know, it's just the people came to practice with me. I taught them in a different mode hmm. than the mode I had been taught in, <clears throat> but I didn't feel like I was betraying the essence. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. I, I I felt like I was just making it intelligible mm -hmm. and realizable to the best of my ability. Um, I was surprised when you said that you uh, didn't have much exposure to spirituality prior to uh, your travels and all that, um, because in your bio it says you were born into a seventh generation rabbinical family. Right. Um which suggested to me must have had some kind of uh, uh, intimate exposure growing up to to Judaism. Um, is that not so? First of all, and um, I'm curious to to what to whatever extent uh, the ancestral religion of your uh, background. Uh, was present in your life, did that influence your approach to Zen? And did your study of Zen influence how you came to see your ancestral tradition? Yeah, from, from the perspective of, and again, rather, I prefer the word insight to Zen in a certain okay. way. The certain the seeing of the nature uh, <clears throat> of the mind and the self that enabled an understanding of Judaism. Hmm. But Judaism never touched me in any spiritual way. Hmm. Afterwards, you know, I could look at things like the names of God used in Judaism or you know certain things but it's such a mishmash of uh, social and <clears throat> political and it's yeah I, I didn't I didn't I never felt it was spiritually inspiring ah. I don't feel like it gave spiritual guidance 
didn't point out the path. I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm sure it's uh, someday will be referred to as the ancient path of the 60s, but. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, will. Uh, I, yeah. I identify with that. <laughs> so, you know, you had the glimpse, now what? You know, yeah. But, but, but even though maybe 10 miles away, it still shines on you. You know, you know that, uh, I don't know, for, for lack of a better term, one of my favorites is the, my teacher had a remark that you should be able to distinguish miso and shit. <laughs> and so, you know, you can tell if something has the flavor of reality or something is just a custom of the ancestors that's handed down with no particular mm -hmm. inside meaning. You know? I, uh, the re one of the reasons I asked was in, in going through your book, I noticed um, you were very comfortable using the word God. Uh, which you don't always find in Buddhist circles, uh, and and so I I wondered if that was a an artifact of you know you're being raised in a Jewish tradition or whatever. But as long as I raise that question, um, how how is how why did you use the word uh, God as often as you did and refer to the love of God and things like that, which is, um, as I said, not the sort of thing one associates with Buddhist teachings, teachers, especially Zen teachers. Well, <laughs> there... it gives me a phony sense of authority. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ooh, 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 look what he said. <laughs> I mean, it always boils down. It, to me, it's just a word for that which saw my corpse on the ground. That's mm -hmm. all. So mm -hmm. you can call that pure, the consciousness, the beyond birth and death or whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, <clears throat> The problem that a lot of people have is intellectualizing the whole thing too much mm -hmm. rather than diving into a, a certain kind of way of experience. So I, I feel comfortable with the word God. I mean, I feel comfortable with the word emptiness. I feel mm -hmm. comfortable with the word transcendent wisdom or, you know, three pounds of flax or whatever anybody <laughs> happens to be calling it these days. <laughs> uh, okay. Then I will not ask you um, to, to, uh, to talk about uh, Zen on a theoretical uh, basis or a co sort of comparative religion uh, basis as, as, you know, and how it differs from... Uh, Tibetan Buddhism and other forms of Buddhism. I'll let people look that stuff up. Um, but I will ask you about Zazen, because you you refer, you talk about the practice very much in your book. And um, you talk about, uh, you know, the centrality of experience. Um, Zen meditation has certain connotations. It's the first thing I tried back in my, <laughs> when I was on the path of the 60s, because I was reading Alan Watts and the Suzuki's and people like that. It was my first exposure. And I remember saying, oh, yes, there's this meditation thing. I even had the Tony Scott record, the uh, music for Zen meditation. And, um, and the instructions I was exposed to were very strenuous, disciplined, involved a lot of mind control. <clears throat> it was the image of, you know, I didn't experience this, but the image of the, the uh, Roshis walking around hitting people with sticks. Um, and, you know, I found it very difficult and un unappealing. So I found different practices. 
how do you understand are first of all are there different forms of zazen of zen practice and uh how do you understand it and how do you explain it to people as a as a practice a lot of people very strongly emphasize the physical aspect of the zazen posture mm. so you put yourself you don't move you breathe and you uh, you uh, take as many ibuprofen as you need you know, <laughs> in order to make it through a retreat. That, you know that was that was the tradition. <laughs> but 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 the but the experience of the mind, you know, it's it's like trying to stop the mind by stopping the body. So you put the body in this unmoving posture that's going to assist somehow in the mind calming down. And to a, to a certain extent it does, but it, it's, it's important to understand the basic principle that the ego doesn't exist. So the ego, which is the mind functioning under the thought, where the mind is ruled by the thought, I am the body. I am this individual. That thought is uh, inaccurate. It's not solid. There is no basic Buddhist teaching. <laughs> I use the <laughs> word. <laughs> that there is no self inside a human form. So who's making the effort? If that's the case, and you decide that the effort of <clears throat> exhausting meditation, who is doing that practice? If that thing doesn't exist, what are you doing? Mm. Who is making the effort and what's going to be the fruition? And I saw a lot of people who were practicing without understanding, without the, the sense that the person sitting on the cushion is not going to attain enlightenment. It's not going to attain insight. The person sitting on the cushion only get, at best gets to see that the body is a corpse, maybe. But corpses don't make effort that mm. way. No, so, so <clears throat> it's one of the ways we try to teach differently because first of all, most people nowadays aren't willing to do that kind of effort. Mm -hmm. And also, I don't know that that effort actually bears fruit. Mm -hmm. what, what bears fruit is having an intelligence that my life as an individual is temporary and that uh, I should just learn how to relax about my personal life because it never fulfills itself. So why are you pushing hard? Why are you doing it? I think it's important for people to have that sense of things and also to have a sense of things that <clears throat> the... Uh, the insight comes, the awakening comes when the mind stops and the mind relaxes. And my teacher used to be very, used to teach it really beautifully, but he, when, when you experience an object and you give yourself totally to the object, you merge into the flower or you merge into an embrace or you merge into, <clears throat> it's the dissolution of the subject of the separation of the subject and the object. And you realize that the light is shining from a different place other than inside the body. The light of being is not shining from within the body. It's not that I experience objects. It's that that which is experiencing beholds the universe unseparated into individual forms. It's one vast. I don't think you know, 
it's it's hard to teach that, but that's what I try to teach. Human warmth, that human warmth is the natural expression of wisdom. So if you don't have wisdom and you don't really know the egoless being, then be a nice person. <laughs> and learn how learn how to awaken in the present moment by being relaxed and undisturbed. But I, I never you know, and I still do seven day sessions with my students where they're sitting ten hours a day. Mm-hmm. Or some, you know, some amount with breaks, but it has a different flavor. I don't feel that the flavor of the meditational is the flavor really of a Zen meditational. Well, that's the impression I got reading ab- about uh, your treatment of of uh, zazen in in your book. I, I was, you know, I was I, I saw that you were making a point of uh relaxing in the practice of non-doing as opposed to uh that sort of strenuous uh, effort that i i associated with zazen that's why i asked about it mm-hmm. so it, it it's it's interesting to me i want to segue to um your illness and uh that um when i first heard about you um Someone told me about that, and and your book was written, or your book, Temporary Affair, are uh, talks, uh, all or most of which were given at a time when you were uh, undergoing serious health problems. Uh, If it's okay to talk about that, I'm curious. Um, You had uh, serious renal failure, according to what I read. you were probably looking at death. And um, what I'm curious about is after a few decades of of practice and uh, being a spiritual leader and teacher, um, did anything about your own reaction to the illness surprise you? Yeah, it made me cry. I was so happy. Really? Yeah. Explain. Because my mind never complained. Ah. There was no resistance happening, which, you know, people would ask me, oh, 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 what do you, you look so, and it wasn't that I did anything, just I didn't do anything. And, uh, I mean, I was looking at death. There was always the possibility of going on dialysis and doing this. Going into, oh, dialysis. I see. Yeah. Which people told me to. But then people in the Zen Center were willing to donate kidneys. So that was an option. But what the reason it got to be more acute than, uh, the reason it, it got to be so acute was because my daughter also offered me a kidney. Ah. And um, the doctors, the surgeons, wanted my daughter's kidney because they thought that would be the best match. Mm, more compatible with you. Yeah. More compatible. The more compatible the match, mm-hmm. the fewer immunosuppressants you need because mm. it's more... DNA connection. <clears throat> but she was getting, she had this problem and that problem. She had an infection here, and you can't, if someone has an infection, they can't be a donor mm. because you're going to be immunosuppressed and then your life is threatened like that. So <clears throat> they kept testing, 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 trying to get it to work. And um, during that period of time, um, my health slipped into uh, well, there were some precarious situations, you know, mm-hmm. emergency emergency room at two o'clock in the morning kind mm-hmm. of stuff, because blood pressure and all kinds of things were going really haywire, and they were hoping. 
not to have to open a dialysis port, not to open a place to do dialysis because the transplant was so imminent. And they wanted to avoid having to do a whole other surgery. And then finally she was, we were in the hospital, I remember in December, and they came in, they were gonna do the surgery the next morning and they said, we just can't do it. There are too many conflicting proteins. Doesn't work, the compatibility isn't really that good. Mm. So that got canceled. And then uh, they opened up a dialysis port. And then it took two months. They fast-tracked a kidney donor because mm-hmm. you have to have a lot of tests for the donor to make sure mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and so then the transplant was two months later, but there were quite a few times of going to the emergency room, you know, sky-high blood pressure. And that mm-hmm. was really urgent injections and things like that it was it was an air of urgency but i never it never touched me Hmm. i I was just there for the ride no fear i i never felt fear in that time not that i recall i mean my my recollection my recollection was a beautiful time huh interesting because the, the mind was very quiet and it was during like a period of stage 4 kidney failure stage 5 is either do something or you're out of here stage 4 was when i put together a lot of poetry and music mm. and CDs because the mind had detached from the world and it was immersed in describing the view and singing about it. Mm. So it was interesting in that way. Yeah, and I bet. I had a, one of the funny times was um, my kidney function had fallen to about six or seven percent. Mm. Uh, you're supposed to have a transplant at 15 to 20. And I, I, I did not notice it at all. Huh. And when I went, I went to see the nephrologist, and they said, we have to do dialysis because you won't survive a transplant surgery in the condition that you're in. And I said to him, I feel great. Mm. <laughs> and he said, you may feel great, but you're almost dead. And maybe those two go hand in hand. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, not for everybody. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I've heard of people with deep spiritual conviction awakening experiences and who thought they had the whole death thing, you know, sorted out. And when it comes, they'll be fine. And then they got very sick and were shocked by uh, the anxiety and fear that came up uh, to have been spared. I was, I was shocked by the anxiety and fear that didn't come up. It's fascinating. To tell you the truth, I didn't expect this would be, you know, and and that's why I said I was I I cried just from how, how how could I have been so fortunate to have had the vision and and the teachings um, to have that experience before having to be in that kind of situation. Yeah. After the transplant. Uh... And you returned to teaching, or maybe you never stopped, but did it affect your teaching, the experience? Do you teach differently because of it? You talk about, for example, one of the phrases I caught my eye in your book was you talked about carrying the impermanence deity with you. Uh, so did, did that sort of experience change how you taught? Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I, I probably did. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think people are now tired of me talking about death. <laughs> Come on. Well, is young, beautiful kids, you know, you're not supposed to be talking about that in, in meditation at all. But <laughs> my, my, my teacher, there, there, you know, some teachings I catch from other places that seem beautiful to me. Um, one of the most beautiful is um, uh, my teacher said that no matter how far, uh, no matter how accomplished you are, as an individual until you integrate death into your existence you will never feel complete until you integrate or surrender accept whatever until you have that acceptance you will never be at peace you will never be complete Mm -hmm. so i mean my teacher was teaching in that way too which again to me has nothing to do with zen you know, no, it's pretty common in a lot of traditions, too. Yeah, I mean, so I, I just don't like, yeah, okay, I'm Zen, what, I don't know, I don't wear the robes that I used to wear, I don't wear the ornate quality, you know, the artistic, the Zendo is really like a cabin in the woods with a mm-hmm. Buddhist Um, one of the uh, sentences that stood out in your book was, speaking of dying, you say that dying is a problem only for the misconceived self, since uh, many people listening will one day face death. Um, What do you mean by that? There's a mistake going on in people's minds that they're not aware of and something that is unreal is being called real. And that mistake is the cause of the fear of death. Um, The idea, I am the body, the body being the identity is a psychological misconception. It's It's not the identity. There's no need to fear the loss. So people ask, you know, what do I need to do to prepare for death? You know, listen. You just need to let go. You don't do anything. It's like, what do you need to do to prepare to breathe? (laughs) It's a natural function that the body will perform and the consciousness will survive but not in the form that you are imagining. Even people who are imagining, you know, I, I survives in some form. Mm-hmm. No, doesn't survive in the form that you, a con, it is no, not, not a continuity of self. 
It's not that I who am, I will survive death. No. I will die and the deathless will reveal itself. It's human nature. The last words in your book before the epilogue, this brief epilogue, sounded very un-Buddhist, <laughs> but very profound. God <laughs> dies to become a human being. A human being dies to return to God. This is the nature of existence. First of all, why did you choose to end the book with that and explain flesh out what you mean by it. Well, let me first say that the book was put together by Rick, my one of my students, ah. who recorded, transcribed, edited. So that was the last talk two days before the transplant. Uh -huh. So that was the so that was why it was there. Um and um, because you know, I, I I have no problem using the word God. And what 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 let's say God dies, it doesn't mean God dies, but <laughs> it means that God ceases to know itself and, and instead identifies itself as a body, it incarnates. And the incarnation of God <clears throat> is, you know, a fall. Mm. The fallen state, the the transcendent. But if if God doesn't fall, then we can't have objective reality. We can't have existence without God fall. So God becomes a human. How? By thinking it's a human. <laughs> That's how it happens. Or you could say the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit impregnates the virgin mind. Mm. And it's born into the, the original mind, which has no identity, just pure knowing. The original mind now has a self in it. Because the mind has a thinking activity. One of the activities that we have breathing, hearing, seeing, smelling, all these activities. And now we also have the activity of thinking. And the activity of thinking has declared itself to be self-existing instead of being one of the um, willless functionings of the human body. So God dies, becomes human, and then that the self, the, the mental function that is calling itself a body dissolves. Mm. And then the awakening is restored. The mind having dropped the body. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, would, I must have been, I must have had a, like a strong cup of coffee that morning. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked it's a very catchy ending very nicely done caught my attention <clears throat> um, uh, coffee can aid the creative process um, when I speak to uh, people of a certain age my age you know uh, which is basically yours um, about the uh reality of death, most people I talk to tend to be spiritual people or at least very intelligent people. And they all to a person say they don't fear death. They fear, if anything, pain and suffering before death. You must have experienced a good deal of pain or at least severe discomfort. Uh, maybe even now... <clears throat> After the transplant, as you look at aging and as you put it in the book, looking in the mirror, wondering, wondering if it's the last time you see your own image, um, how are you dealing with it? 
Are you dealing with it gracefully? Is anything about the aging process uh, surprising I you? I don't feel a need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. That's all. Okay. That 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 says a lot. I'm not running away from it. Who says you have to deal with it? I just uh, interesting tale this last summer. Um, we had uh, yeah, dogs, and there was a ten-year-old poodle who was the mother of <clears throat> two dogs that we kept from a litter. So we had three dogs: a mother and two children. And <clears throat> in the middle of the night, she was she just was standing very still and shaking. Mm. And I felt her body, it was like a rock. Her whole body was like a rock. I didn't know anything about this. So she was at the top of the stairs and couldn't move. And I went to the bathroom because I thought, better do that quick. And when I came back, she wasn't there. So in that frozen state, she had made it down a flight of stairs out the door, doggy door, and went out into the earth garden. Mm. Mm. And she just lay down. And I sat down next to her and she, she was in this bad move. And her breath became shorter and shorter. And then she died. She, she had no problem. She yeah. just died. He died. And it didn't seem sad to me. Mm -hmm. I was just with her. I couldn't really like pet her or anything because I, mean, I had my hand on her, but I felt like I was disturbing a process that mm. I shouldn't disturb. But she died. It happens. And they're only human beings are obsessed with, you know, how many milligrams of vitamin B14 should I take daily in order to, you know, that kind of thing. I mm -hmm. want, the long, want the longest possible life. <clears throat> and I think even that kind of thing um has to do with the fear of death. Mm -hmm. so that the longevity of life, which is looked at as a fallen state when you realize the insight, you know, you're just more like flow with everything. You're you're not you're not really an, an, an actor as much as in the beginning you are. Being an actor is very important. But I don't know, being old now, maybe different for me. For example, I have seem to be a lot of people who are going through hellish experiences because of the Middle East. Yeah. And they have a lot of attachments. <clears throat> and uh, they can't find the way out of their pain. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Chewing it and chewing it, and how could this and you and forget which side people are on? It's very difficult to make sense of this world based on everybody being individual selves. You know, people are crazy. <laughs> This world is very crazy right now. Yes, it is. One, one of when I talk about it with people, I say what you are what you are witnessing is the unleashing of the full consequence of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah, the way out of suffering is to annihilate your enemy 
and that's been given full support of people in power who attack immediately, attack, attack, attack when something is wrong. That's the spiritual traditions don't teach that. Although they get caught up in it from time to time and reinforce it, as we've seen, unfortunately, uh, through history. That's religion, not spiritual. I hear you. (laughs) No, I hear you. Very true. Um, David, I'm going to bring up what might be an uncomfortable topic, but I hope it's okay because I, I can't not bring it up. Uh, you've mentioned with great affection your your teacher, Joshu Sasaki Roshi, many times. Um, when he passed, I remember it very well, and anybody who Googles him will find it. Um, there were revelations about um, decades of, apparently, of um, what we would think of as sexual exploitation of of some of his students, female students. Um, That's a matter of public record. It was shocking to many people, but not shocking to uh, others who were around and knew about it. How did you respond to learning about it whenever it was? And how do you feel about it now, given, you know, times are different uh, in this... uh, post-Me Too era? Well, I I wasn't really attached to Joshu Sasaki physical form. Mm. I was studying with someone who could induce the wisdom, who could facilitate my experience of wisdom, of the insight, which um, that was my reason for being with him. And because I had a family, uh, wife and children and things I did, I was never in the same situation as those who resided with him. Mm. who lived at the Zen centers, okay? My my only um, my only the only time I really felt I needed to respond to the situation was when he came to teach at Ithaca because we mm. had a Zen where he would come and teach and uh, when I found out that he was accused then pretty obviously um, giving uninvited contact. So when the session started, I I gathered the students and I just uh, made an announcement that Joshi Roshi has been reported to have contact like this. If you feel uncomfortable with this, then please mention it to me or to him directly if it happens. And uh, I still believe his power to transmit the true nature is extremely potent. And please make use of it as best you can. And if there's a difficulty, let me know. And was so there? I, I put it right on the table before the session started. When was that? Oh, it was whenever he would come. He would come to Ithaca once a year, twice a year to do session. And in oh. the beginning years, I hadn't heard anything about it because I wasn't in, you know, the circle mm. of the immediate. I was living life in Ithaca and had a practice and a job and. I didn't know, but when I did find out, find out, I did mention it to students before the session. And did uh, how did they react? 
Well, <laughs> it was, the only time I ever heard back was some woman was, she came to me at the end of the session and she was so freaked out that he had, uh, he hadn't touched her. In the last day, he said to her something like, I don't remember what. Mm. Can I kiss you? Something, maybe, in an interview. I, I can't remember exactly. And she was devastated. Mm. And she had, you know, a history of abuse. Mm. So it was a very raw nerve. My wife... Marcia, who is uh, far more along than I am, <laughs> she was she was Roshi's attendant. Oh. whenever he came to Ithaca, and um, she'd been through a. I can't even describe her, but she's like a, a warrior. I could say. And she was perfectly comfortable with him. Mm. And any way he acted with her was a joke to her. And and he loved her in a way like, boy, here's a woman I can really be a buddy with. Mm -hmm. you know? So I took a lot of a cue from her. You know, for her, it wasn't um, wasn't a big deal. Mm. It was this 90-year-old guy who was 85, 80, whatever it was, year old person who was just socially starving or something. And she was very comfortable with him. I can't give you more definite answers. It's a distant thing for me now. Mm. And, and I think the, the people, I mean, I think Sasaki was a very rare, powerful teacher. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is, <clears throat> as I'm sure you're aware, uh, he's not the only one. <laughs> there are, you know, others scandals, if you want to use that word, in the Zen world, in the Swami world, the Guru world, and of course in Western right. religions as well. And um, it comes up a lot in my life and in my work, and there's people very, very deeply disturbed by it. Uh, a lot of people, especially women, deeply wounded by their experiences. And there's lawsuits going on, some you know about things that happened 40, 50 years ago. Um, so it's in the in the air. And one of the things people struggle with is what seems to be a contradiction between people of wisdom and spiritual insight and presence and misbehavior. That seems to be uh, there's cognitive dissonance there. How do you how do you see that the the, the awakened, presumably awakened teacher who should know better, uh, misbehaving? How do how do you advise people dealing with to deal with that as a as a closing <laughs> question? I don't create cognitive dissonance. You don't experience it. It's, it's, you know, it's, there's a, yeah, I mean, you, you could say I, I'm, I'm, I don't have that in my sangha. Mm. I'll say that, okay? Cognitive dissonance comes from thinking that things or people need to be other than the way they are. Mm. Doesn't come from cognitive dissonance. There's no 
cognitive dissonance and, you know, Gaza. Well, cognitive dissonance in, mm, I don't know what. Cognitive difference is the mind's responding that something that happened shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. But that's like saying God fucked up. It's like saying the past isn't the past. The past shouldn't have been the way it was, even though in Buddhist teaching, the most fundamental thing is that the whole universe is a chain of causation that extends throughout the infinity of space and time. Everything is produced by causation and not by will. That's the ground. Okay, mm -hmm. you can't come from that, but that's the ground. So that if something's happened to you in the past and there's no other way to integrate it but saying that, oh, here's a bell. <laughs> <laughs> Garbage truck. <laughs> that is this is what happened because this is what happened. And and you can <clears throat> experience it, you know, people get traumatized. Yeah. Um but mm, you know, I, I haven't I haven't um, had to experience in my life something which I felt couldn't have happened or shouldn't have happened or Sasaki shouldn't have been that way or this Tibetan fellow shouldn't have been that way or this one. No, they are what they are. And it's your job to make your life work and make your mind work, given that this is what they are. They are not other than the way they are. And if you feel like the way that's going to heal your wound is to make a lawsuit against them 50 years later, I, I don't think it's beneficial. You know, maybe, maybe the lawsuit will somehow put your mind at rest. I don't know. But from, from my side, it just, I don't want to spend my final years worrying about things that had to be the way they were. Okay. I appreciate that, uh, that you were uh, willing to talk about it even. Um, I remember, I pretty much hid. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in hiding for a period of time. Um, thank you for being with us. Thanks for uh, the beautiful work in A Temporary Affair. I uh, recommend listeners uh, getting the book. It's very thin, short chapters reflecting uh, talks that uh, David gave over the course of some time. I recommend it. Um, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Go back and listen to some of the earlier ones. Tell your friends about it, please. <laughs> Email me with suggestions. Uh, check out my own website and um, keep in touch. Let me know if you have any suggestions for us. In the meantime, uh, thank you again, David Raiden. Yoshin, David Raiden. And um, keep up the good work. So, we'll see you next time. Yep. Did pleasure. you have a last word? Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk with a brother on the path. And uh, many sisters and brother listeners, I'm sure, appreciated it. Thank you. Okay.
I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.